This episode of Real Blend is brought to you by Marvel Strike Force. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. Power up your favorite characters and build a team to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and even challenge other players in PvP modes such as Alliance War and Arena. New ways to battle with your roster are released regularly and the meta is constantly evolving. And now you can sign on for Marvel Strike Force's new Deadpool Anniversary event in order to receive a generous gift containing character shards, an anniversary diamond orb, gear, and other great items. Better yet, each week during the Deadpool anniversary, players can complete events and receive even more special rewards and skins. If you want to get in on all the fun of Marvel Strike Force, be sure to use our promo code MAXPOOL, that's M-A-X-P-O-O-L, and thank you to Marvel Strike Force for supporting the show. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. they send you the movie? Did you watch yeah. the movie? Yes. yes. Yep. I was able to see it today. We have the, they sent us the link, yeah. So yes. it's it's awesome. So, yeah. Oh, good. I'm glad. You know, we, it, because of how weird things have been, we haven't shown it to anybody, really. I mean, we've shown it to people via links only because uh, I guess when we were color timing, when we were very finishing up the movie, the uh, COVID hadn't come yet, but then it came right away. So we really never screened the finished uh, thing. Do you, do you miss the test screening process? We did test screenings, but that was only one after initial shooting. And then we had, the plan was always, we had, we shot 26 days. I guess we've started. Well, I guess we've started. Yes, we have. <laughs> we shot 26 days and then we learned a bunch of stuff we, you know, wanted to know anyway. And we had four more days of shooting, but we had to shut down for six months to wait for Kevin because he was, he had a, he's in the uh, city on a hill where he wears this enormous mustache. Okay. And that we just, we kept trying to figure out, it's only four days. How do we squeeze this in? Can we remove the mustache? And of course, you know. That does not go over well, David. That is never a good idea to <laughs> yeah. try to remove the mustache. Expensive and looks terrible. So, you know, we didn't do that. Um, and, you know, so we ended up, we just, because it were a small movie, we were pretty light on our feet. And we could just shut down for six or seven months. Then we came back and did the reshoots. Then we, then we finished the movie. But by then, events had caught up with us. Gotcha. Anyway. Um, I'm not trying to name drop in any way, shape or form, uh, but we recently, recently were lucky enough to have uh, Damien Chazelle, the director of La La Land and, and Whiplash on the show. And he, he talked to us about something that I never thought about. And now I pay attention to it religiously, which is why he pays so much attention to his opening scene, uh, the way he writes it or the way that he shoots it, because he feels like right when a title starts and the black screen fades that's when you have an audience's attention uh, the fullest, right? And they don't know whether it's going to be Citizen Kane or a, a disaster. And your opening uh, plunges you right into the nightmares to the point where, honestly, when I looked at the 
um, screener, I was like, am I deeper into the movie than I should be? Because it, you really throw the audience into it. And I'm not going to give away spoilers, but I just want to hear your thought process behind openings in general and the opening of this movie specifically. Well, I'm uh, with Mr. Chazelle on that one. I mean, I'd back up even further. I, I, I become very emotional and excited at, at company logos. Okay. You know, like the 20th Century Fox thing, uh, and I guess none of those apply anymore. It's not the 20th Century. There's no more Fox. They're not a you know. I don't know what it is, but you know the the fanfare and the logo. I mean, you know, nothing gets me more excited than the RKO logo. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I just because at that it's as you say at that moment, there's so much promise. It could be the greatest film you've ever seen. It could completely change things for you. And, you know, it's usually not because how many of those can there be? But um, with our opening, I wanted to, the first image is always extremely important. And our first shot really says everything you need to know about the movie. The, the, it's, it's not giving anything away to say it starts, you know, downstairs in someone's house at night and you're moving toward the family picture and a shadow falls over the family picture. And that's, Pretty straightforward saying, <laughs> look, it's a nice family, but there's, uh, there's shadows um, and depths. And the opening sequence itself, which I think is a little twisty um, and hopefully has a surprise in it or two, um, also tells you everything you need to know. And it's, I think those are harder to come by than, than you think. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're... Uh, I mean, you mentioned Chazelle, so like the opening of La La Land is unbelievable. I'd be shocked if that wasn't, though, one of the first things that he thought of, because it's so strong and so clearly um, almost a movie in itself, Uh, you know, a movie full of of ideas and entertainment. In fact, I want to go watch that again after we hang out. So, so yeah, openings mean a lot. And you only get a chance to do it once. Right. you know, one of the things that I think is fun about uh, episodic TV, uh, watching it, I haven't done it, you know, but um, I hope to. It seems like you get to do openings a lot. Mm-hmm. There's, uh, you know, in some shows like Breaking Bad famously would do openings that would, they'd wrap their way around narratively mm-hmm. to get back to the, where it would make sense again. Or you'd suddenly be able to do, you know, six years ago. This is, this is something interesting that happened. And, and um, the idea of being able to do an opening every week is pretty tempting. Awesome. Um, David, I, first of all, I think my picture might be frozen, so I, was, I apologize for that. Um, there are so many actors who start out their career in the, the horror thriller genre. When you look at uh, Johnny Depp with Nightmare on Elm Street and Jamie Lee Curtis with, with Halloween. And, and then obviously Kevin Bacon 40 years ago was in Friday the 13th. I'm curious, did you ever maybe geek out a little bit with him about the earlier days working on Friday the 13th? And why do you think so many actors are drawn to this genre so early in their careers? Um, well, I don't want to be cynical, but I feel like those are the jobs they can get. <laughs> you know, they're, they're young, they're young and good looking. And, and that's who you want to kill off. Exactly. <laughs> horror movies really need young and good looking, uh, certain kinds of horror movies in particular, like the ones you mentioned. Um, and there's, but there's, what's great about them is there's, I mean, I, I'm, I'm a huge fan of horror, but what I particularly love about horror is that, and, you know, even in horror's renaissance of the last five, 10 years, um, you see, even and especially, you see that you get to, exp- you get to sneak other movies in there with it. You know, you get to do a, do a domestic drama, 
a thing about a troubled marriage, um, you know, some societal commentary. Uh, and it, it pairs beautifully with horror. Um, you know, there's a reason 1950s horror works so incredibly well. Um, and it's because there were so many undercurrents in society and there was you know, such great paranoia and suspicion, you know, also marching in lockstep, but being afraid of the, of the other and, you know, the civil rights movement was still a decade away. So there was oppression and, um, so much we didn't talk about and all that, all of that's things that swim under the surface go so beautifully, uh, with the horror genre. Um, so, you know, I think that, I think actors are drawn to it because, they get to explore some interesting and nuanced characters. They can have dark sides. They can have, um, or they can go through intense, powerful experiences. And who doesn't want to act that stuff? You know, D- David, uh, viewing a film is very interesting depending on where you are, whether, whether it be theatrically or at home. I think great films work in both environments. And obviously some films play differently in a theater than some films would play at home. Um, your film was originally supposed to play in theaters and, and, and we are, we're going to VOD next Friday. And I'm actually very interested to know once that switch was made, do you have to do anything technically to the film a- immediately for it to come into people's homes? Is, do, you, do you design it at all differently via sound? I mean, I know fi- films are finished, they go to theaters and they come out on demand at the end, but because of this circumstance where it was going to play in a theater and goes right to VOD, do you have to adjust anything technically? And are there elements of your film that you're excited for people to view at home? You know, I just want to address one part of that. I don't know that this was always destined to be in a theater. Um, I mean, certainly we, we hoped for a theatrical release. We wanted a theatrical release, but we had just come to the point where we were discussing it with Blumhouse and Universal when, you know, when COVID came and made it moot. But part of me felt like, I don't know that I want to be, uh, you know, I've been making movies for 30 years and I, and I, and I, having them be in a movie theater is the, is the, the knee plus ultra. That's the experience you want. Um, and that's how I best like to see most movies. But this movie's, you know, it's it's cinematic, but it's also intimate. And I don't, you know, theaters have changed. What's shown in theaters have changed. What people are willing to go out to see has changed. And what I definitely didn't want to happen was to go out and compete with a minor and have a minor league budget for promotion and have to compete with a bunch of, you know, $150, $250 million movies. Um, or squeeze in some weekend where you feel like a tiny, some sliver of the audience might be yours, you know, that, that I just didn't want to get crushed. So when this came as a, as an option and a possible new way for them to debut movies, uh, I was really thrilled. I'm, I, I hope it works, not just cause it's my movie, but I hope it works cause tonight I really want to watch King of Staten Island. You mm-hmm. know, I think, I think that's great and exciting when something comes out that way and you can do it at home and I don't mind paying the 20 bucks. Um, I know it's a lot of money, but if there's a couple of you, it's, it's, uh, and you like the movie, which is really crucial. (laughs) It's, uh, I think it's a great way to watch. So there's that section, but to address more specifically what, what you asked, um, I don't think so. Maybe, you know, maybe a greater, more technically, uh, uh, a polished filmmaker than me would say, um, you know, maybe Chris Nolan would say, certainly it was completely redesigned, nothing to do with it. But 
I feel like your eye is your eye and you make the movie the way you see it in your head. And whether what you see in your head is going to come out on somebody's TV at home or it's going to come out on a, on a you know, cinema screen, I don't, I, for me, that doesn't affect the way you make it. Mm. Um, it's nice that you don't have to edit for home view. Home viewing used to mean TV, which meant edits. And, you know, you used to have to think of the ridiculous, ridiculous loops that you're going to do to replace language and stuff like that. So I'm happy that we don't have to do any of that. Mm. But you're sort of designing it for, you're designing it to be watched either in a cinema or in somebody's half decent. Mm. No, a lot of people are going to watch it on their computer. That's actually better if they wear headphones because, mm. you know, you're, it's, it's an intense Experience. Bradley Cooper said the same thing about Roma. He watched Roma with his computer with his headphones, and he said it was mind blowing. I remember him saying that. Like that Why did he say it because of the sound, or just, just the sound? Yeah, having like like being that close to your computer screen and having a giant pair of like headphones on. It was like he, it was yeah. like the immersion was in, more interesting to him. He said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It because you really get your concentration up, which yeah. is what you do in a movie theater. You know, mm. you're not supposed to talk or text. And so, you know, you, you're really concentrating, you do it all at once. And I find, um, I now find that I watch a lot of stuff. My wife goes to sleep earlier than I do. So, but I'm in bed. So I build a little pillow fort and I have an iPad and headphones <laughs> and it's some of my favorite times to watch stuff. Cause yeah. I'm completely immersed in it. The room is dark all around me. Um, you know, I'm in my little pillow cave and I'm really zeroed in on what I'm watching and I don't miss anything because I'm wearing headphones. So I think they can be pretty great watching. Yeah. Yeah. That's outstanding. Um, we, we make jokes about Nolan that he's going to bring tenant around like with film reels to everybody's house individually. <laughs> he's got a four wallet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> as much as he can. Um, I, I have to single out a scene from your film, uh, because it, it actually caught my breath. It was so beautiful. Uh, it's, it's, uh, and it, there's no spoilers involved in it. Uh, but it's a stairwell that's lit by a light bulb and the way that, and you play with light a lot, uh, lights throughout the house, Shadows cast by light. Uh, it's all very deliberate. But this scene in particular really just took my breath away. Can you talk a little bit about the design of that shot? It, it, it almost seems like you might have designed the staircase just for this shot specifically, because it's so I hope you know which scene I'm referring to. Well, there's two. Um, is it the stairwell that's several stories or is it yes. the staircase? Yeah. Trying to get up? OK, yes. no, that that stairwell was on a location. OK. Um, and we came across it. And it sort of took our breath away, too. And we said we there were a couple windows, which we immediately you know, said, OK, we're going to get some flats and paint this and cover that up because we don't want any light. Um, and then, you know, there's just nothing more fun than hanging a light on a bulb and giving it a little push. Um, you know, it's it's so iconic. It's in Blumhouse's little, you know, mm -hmm. teaser thing at their, their company logo at the beginning of the thing, because a light bulb on a string swinging is just is is just so primal and it's so it's so easy to get and so effective and because staircase uh, staircase a lot of you know staircases have railings that casts elongated shadows that change in shape and size as the bulb swings um and uh so no we that was just we saw an opportunity he initially went down one rather dull staircase and as okay. we were exploring uh england has a, a ton of old manor houses that are now in the national trust Many of them fallen into disrepair and they make fabulous movie sets. And if you poke around them, you find the greatest hallways and stairwells and old 
you know, broken apart things. Some of them are really exquisitely taken care of. You know, that wasn't what we were interested in. But um, so that was just some fortuitous, you know, that was some good luck. We were on a location where there was a great thing. So we wrote an extra thing to, to shoot well, in it. And you have an eye for it. So that absolutely helps. <laughs> well, thank you. You know, there's there's a sequence later that I wondered if you might also be referring to, but it's a, you weren't, but it's a similar thing. It's a staircase. And for complex reasons in this weird house, Kevin Bacon's character can't get from the bottom to the top of the staircase. And mm-hmm. uh time is it becomes weird and it's day and then it's night and then it's day and then it's night and we'd shot it once and cut it all daytime and it it didn't feel right didn't feel like enough it didn't feel exciting enough so we went back to the locate we were still on the set a, a few days later and i said let's do this let's not have any lights it's not you know light for night so just turn everything off uh basically except a little bit outside the windows and we hung a 2k on a rope and and pushed it. And that was our light source. Awesome. <laughs> you know, again, it was throwing him and the, and the stair rails all over the walls. And I've never seen a crew get so excited about something. Because right. when, when me and the DP said, okay, here's what we're going to do. Get a 2K and 50 feet of rope and hang it around that rafter. And they were like, right! <laughs> you know, it was... It was because it's really engaging because then yeah. you're getting back to, you know, making movies in your backyard. Yeah, yeah. That's, That's awesome. awesome. The shadows that you create on the wall, are, are you doing those practically or is that being done in post? Uh, I, I believe all of them are practical. Cool. Um, except the one, even some that is added. Yeah. But it's a practical shadow that we, you know, shot. And later, and then and and then put in. We found because shadows played a slightly larger role in an early cut of the film, and we had CG shadows. And I was really unhappy with them because we know exactly what shadows look like, and I think CG works best when it's used to create things we don't know what they look like. Yeah. Um, and when you're trying to re- you're trying to re- you know everybody knows what a shadow looks like. They know what their shadow looks like. So you better get it exactly right. So doing that with CG, I think, is is pointless and a waste cool. of time and money. So we shot, you know, shadows that, you know, people doing things we needed them to do just cool. against a white background or against a green background and then put them in where, it, you know, if we needed specific timing and stuff. Cool. Thank we, you. We are a geeky show. Thank you. For I wanted to know that. Us. Thank you. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, no, please. I, it's, it's, you're asking me what's in the cake. I love talking. <laughs> Uh, David, speaking of geeking, um, the the boys here can testify uh, to my, I don't think mild is the right word, but basic obsession with the film Jurassic Park. Um, obviously, yesterday was the 27th anniversary. I just re-watched the movie a couple of days ago with my girlfriend. Um, I, in fact, we, we did a segment where we talked about our favorite movie scenes ever, and my favorite movie scene is the T-Rex breakout um, in Jurassic Park. That's my all-time favorite movie scene. But one of the biggest, like, what ifs, what I've always wondered about in the world of movies is uh, the the rumored, the cut rafting scene that was supposed to be in Jurassic Park, where I believe Sam was supposed to be in the raft with the kids, and the T-Rex, like, chases them along this river. I'm just sort of curious. Obviously, I had heard that it got cut pretty early in the process because it was going to be very expensive and it was just impractical. But I'm curious, like, was that whole scene written out? And what can you tell me, like, what would that scene have been? Because it sounds incredible. There were... Well, you'd have to ask Steven specifically because I don't, I think when I got there, 
he was showing me a bunch of boards he'd done. And those, some of which were more or less exactly as you see them in the movie. Um, and that there was a sequence, you know, with the river and the wrecks and the kids and that, but he like thumbed past it and said, oh, no, 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 we're not going to do this one. So oh. it, was, it was, it was cut very early on. I think, um, I think the idea of combining, there was so much that was going to be challenging and, and difficult and um, had yet to be figured out technologically on that movie, mm-hmm. that the idea of adding water to that uh, <laughs> made Mr. Jaws, you know. <laughs> Hit a little PTSD? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. It's <laughs> going to be hard enough, I don't think. I don't think I'll do that. You know, David, I want to ask you, you, you're responsible for very famous lines in cinema. Um, There are a lot of lines that you've written that are in very, very famous films that people know and love. I was just curious for you, do you have, I I don't mean this, because I know it's hard to pick like one or the other, but do you have a favorite line you've written that you're proud of that's been said on screen by an actor? One that just kind of, you, it just blows your mind that you get to see it said on camera like that. Um. There's there's a couple jump to mind that I like. Um, one is as long as we're talking about Jurassic Park. One is a very it's a very simple line. It's only four words, but it, I like the way it came to be in the movie and that people liked it. It's when um, we were I was I was finishing Death Becomes Her when I was writing um, Jurassic Park, and uh, we we had an ending that was really disastrous at first and you know like one of these horrible test screenings where they almost kill you so we very quickly gone out to shoot a new ending for the movie but there was little time before the movie came out so we were in the dailies um of the of the reshoots and there was going to be no opportunity to redo the reshoot so this was it this really had to work and we sat down in the dailies and as the lights were going down bob zemeckis said hold on to your butts Oh. I happened to be working on the script at that time. And I was like, oh, I love that. And I went back and I typed it into the script immediately. <laughs> and then Sam Jackson said it. So uh, I was, I got to, you know, Bob, I don't think I ever told Zemeckis that, but that's his line. Oh, what? My God. Oh, man. <laughs> that's David, incredible. because you said that, I, I, this was actually something I asked the guys before the show. So forgive my ignorance. Um, I have not read Crichton's original book. Was Welcome to Jurassic Park your line or Crichton's line? Well, it would be ungentlemanly. I honestly don't remember, but oh. since the man has passed away, it wouldn't be very nice of me to say it's mine. <laughs> <laughs> Not here to defend himself. Um, I honestly don't remember. I, I feel like I feel like that was the script, but I'm not mm. quite sure. There's a very close friend of ours uh, who writes for a site, Collider, one of our rival sites, um, and Jurassic Park was one of her favorite films of all time, and Hold On To Your Butts is her most favorite line, to the point where she lost a bet and she had to get uh, it tattooed onto her body. (laughs) And so what she ended up doing, she was lucky enough to um, get Sam Jackson in a junket opportunity, and she had him write it uh, on a piece of paper, and then she tattooed his writing of that onto her. So that's she's going cool. to love this uh, backstory of where this line wow. comes from. That's where it came from. It came from uh, reshoots of Death Becomes Her, praying <laughs> they went well. Wow. <laughs> wow. But the, um, um, no, I, I love how much people love that movie and uh, that it's stuck around. And it's, um, I spent, a, I spent probably 
how long is it? It's 27 years ago. So I probably, yesterday. I spent 15 or 20 years uh, resenting the fact that that was probably going to be the most beloved, most successful movie I ever did. And I did it when I was, you know, like 29 or 30. <laughs> um, and then I spent, I've now spent the last 10 years feeling incredibly grateful that I got to be a part of that because, <laughs> you know, just to that's a that's a pretty special thing to have. So well, I, I, well to allow us to uh, to continue to mine your amazing credits today, being the anniversary of um, Raiders of the Lost Ark, uh, one of the again greatest films of all time. Yes, I was sixteen when I wrote that, but I. I've... <laughs> <laughs> well, you have been lucky enough to at least try something that none of us will ever be able to claim, which is just break story uh, on a Indiana Jones film. Um, yeah. And I know currently that you're working on another. One. I believe you're still working on the other one. Is that correct? Still, I'm not anymore. I oh, I you're not. Okay, several versions of it with Stephen um, over over the, a few years, and you know we got close several times, but they're complicated things to try to get everybody to you know everybody to agree on, and they're hard to make. They're hard to do good ones, um, right. you know, as you can imagine, and and some may uh, attest um, the. So I'm not on anymore. When Stephen left, it seemed like a good time to let uh, Jim Mangold try his try his way. So I'm I'm dying to see what he comes up with. But they're really yeah they're they're exceptionally difficult, and I feel like um, uh, I, I hope they I hope they hit a good one. When uh, you yeah, when you're staring at that blank page, knowing you're going to start the next chapter of such an iconic character, like how do you even how do you even start writing the first few lines? Is that just it's very hard. I had this on um, uh, Spider-Man 2, or Spider-Man also, mm -hmm. um, because at the time, you know, that it, it was a comic book. It had been around for 35 years, and it was beloved by me and he, others. He, and were, he's my all-time favorite character, by the way. Spider-Man is my all-time favorite character, and I love what you... I love Fabulous, you. empathetic. Uh, it's just a, it's a brilliant design for a character, you know? Mm -hmm. um, somebody who's truly innocent, screwed up, a little bit was made to pay far more than, than was fair and has been trying to make up for it ever since, but kept their sense of humor. Well, that's a great character. Um, the, so anyway, it was like, it was similar to doing that in that, you know, when, when the first Spider-Man came around, the internet was fairly young, but it was pretty nasty already. <laughs> it had already become an inhospitable place. And I felt like, you know, in a, in a basketball game when they're on the road and you're shooting free throws and the opposing fans are all waving, around, screaming and waving those things and banging them together to try to make yeah. you miss. Yeah. I kind of felt like that's what writing was like <laughs> on those movies. Oh, my God. That's an awful feeling. Yeah. <laughs> so much noise and so many opinions and yeah. so much yeah. uh, Lucasfilm fans in particular are, are difficult to please. And <laughs> they're... Um, so there, there's a there's a lot of pressure, and it can be very distracting. I can imagine. Um, obviously, you get behind the camera with this film, which I, I obviously you've you've written more films than you've been able to get behind the camera for. But of all the scripts that you've written, now that you have obviously experience behind the camera, which one do you retroactively wish that you could have gone back and maybe just tried your hand at directing and see what it, what it would have been like? Um, none of them, not not a single one. <laughs> uh, and well, maybe. It's ungentlemanly to say which ones, but the, um, the, the reason I have a very complex relationship with directing. I, I hate it. It's a, it's a, it's a horrible way to spend your time. Um, it's bad for you 
physically, psychologically, uh, terrible for your personal life. Um, it's just a really rough way to spend your time. Um, and, and yet I, I, I keep doing it. I've done it seven times, you know, and it's a weird thing to complain about, you know, like, Oh, poor me. I, I, I have to direct movies and I don't want to. That's, um, that's really difficult to, to, to find likable in a person, someone who would say something like that. <laughs> but, but I find it, um, it's, it's just really, really, it's, it's draining and difficult. And I have so much respect for directors who can do it and who can shut out what they need to shut out and laser focus on what they have to focus on and never quit. I remember David Fincher said once I was complaining about something I was doing and somebody not going along with the way I wanted it to be. And, and, um, he said, uh, panic room. No, this was, I was, I was, yeah, he did panic room, but I was talking about something that I was doing and complaining to him. Um, and he said, dude, complete intransigence. It's the only way. And <laughs> I have not been able to pull that off quite as well as, as, as he does. Nobody can be more completely intransigent than him. And it works. Um, for him, but I find it a really rough uh, way. Now, the reason I keep doing it is because I love. There are some things that feel very personal or intimate, uh, even if it's a, you know a, a genre movie, um, thriller or horror or whatever. Um, there's something about it that feels very much like me in particular, uh, and so those I want to be the one to talk to the actors, and I want to be the one to edit it um, because that so shapes the movie, um, but. Uh, you know, on, on others, I feel like, well, now I'm, 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 I'm putting everything I have into it, but I'm, most, I'm also bringing just a bunch of craft. And, you know, I, sometimes, sometimes you're building cabinets for somebody else and you just want to build some beautiful cabinets. And, you know, um, I like doing that, too. So which one what, do I wish I'd directed? Uh, um, see, it's hard to separate without, you know, like how it did in the end. Well, I, you know, I would have loved to direct Jurassic Park, but then that's, you know, <laughs> I don't think I would have done as good of a job. I don't know. I'm just guessing. I'd like to see your version of it. I would be curious. <laughs> I'm sure anybody else would. <laughs> Intellectual exercise. That'd be fascinating. I know we're running out of time, but I think Kevin has one last question, if that's okay, sir. Yeah, okay. We, 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 uh, we, I'll end on this. So, um, David, for, correct me if I'm wrong. You were second unit director on Lost World. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, and you also have a cameo in that film, correct? Yeah. You don't, yeah, so I wanted to ask you one about your cameo specifically. What do you remember about that? And two, what you what your second unit directing experience was like on that film with Spielberg directing, and what you took from that experience that you still use now. So I guess first your cameo, but what was that second unit like directing on a film like that? Well, the cameo was just super fun and self indulgent. I, I, you know, I was an actor in high school and college, and I um. I was too afraid to, you know, do anything where I had words, but I felt like I could probably run and scream effectively. So I just, I wrote a part of a, a guy who runs, screams, you know, and then gets eaten by the T-Rex. And I thought I, I can, I can probably do that. Um, so I, I just begged Steven and he, uh, he let me, he got very sad though, because on the day I was supposed to shoot it, it was actually a night shoot. And um, I, they had, they had laid out these clothes for me, which I thought, which I hated. And I, I put him on and I came to him and I said, he said, Oh, you look great. And I said, I, can I wear my own clothes? I hate these. These make me look fat. 
I can't run in these shoes. You know, <laughs> I would never wear this. This is so uncool. I don't think he's as nerdy. And he just kind of, you know, buried his head and said, oh, God, you too. <laughs> so, uh, that was just for fun. Second unit was, it was, I learned massive amounts, but I, I was given the keys to a Ferrari. I mean, you know. Janusz Kaminski was shooting it. Yeah. You know, um, Stan Winston was doing a lot of the animals. Dennis Muren was always hanging around, <laughs> you know, telling you what, wow. what you needed to do. I had Jeff Goldblum and, and Julianne, Julianne Moore. I mean, it was, you know, there was a lot of, a lot was easy to do because everybody knew their jobs so well. What's your communication like with Spielberg, though, as you do that job? Like, how does that, can you explain to our audience how that job works? Well, some some shots, you know, you're going out in the middle of, you know, somewhere where there's no communication. So you just, you've done storyboards and or discussed the shots with him and, you know, you're up. But then you go out in Hawaii and you're on a truck and rolling toward the base of the hills and the cars are coming toward you. And he's like, try and get low and try and get right, get the wheel right as it goes by, you know. Mm. So you go out and you get, do your best with a very, very good crew. Um, others we'd have him, you know, there was a period he had to be in New York for a few days. And so we had a video set up so I could show him the shot and oh. check from his apartment. It was a little, it was, it was kind of daunting because it's, I'm trying to ape his style in these shots because I want it to fit in the movie, yeah. you know, and not stick out. And, um, <clears throat> so you're always aware that you're doing what he does and what he would do only not as well. And, you know, it's not super fun. What was fun was more the remote stuff. Like there's a scene on a boat where the boat gets stuck in the river. Uh, and they, or no, the, the reason, in, I don't know if you remember the movie very well, but they're trying to go up river and the boat stops. And they say, mm -hmm. why did the boat stop? And they say, well, the crew doesn't want to go any further because they've heard stories about what's going on up there, mm -hmm. right? And that wasn't the scene. The scene was originally supposed to, they talk on the boat, the boat lands, they get off the boat. But we got stuck on a sandbar in the middle of the river. <laughs> so Stephen was on an airplane headed to wherever he was going to shoot next. And I called him and I said, we're stuck on a sandbar. I, I, can't, I can't land and have him get off the boat. And he said, just, it was cracking up. It was coming in and out. And he said, just rewrite it however you can and shoot whatever you can. Oh my gosh. So we very quickly out on this boat on the sandbar rewrote, you know, why have we stopped? And I just made up the scene. Is that the, the five deaths? Like, oh, we, we call the island the five deaths where he's like translating with a yes. guy in Spanish? Yeah. All made up at the last. What? what? That's insane. <laughs> and then the tide came up and the boat floated free. We but uh, we, yeah, we had to make up a whole thing. That's a so great that was scene. fun because you're, you know, using your wits that's awesome and these are how your favorite movies are made kids <laughs> wow <laughs> happy accidents overcoming adversity is like the whole thing of making movies that's did that awesome. happen in in your most recent film as well too did you hit any situations where you felt like i have to rewrite myself out of this corner that i painted myself into <laughs> not so much with no but not not in that sense but you're cha logistically challenged and time and budget challenged you know because okay. we made it for, you know, a price and we shot in quickly and we had a six-year-old girl who could only work a limited number of hours. In a lot of scenes. Yeah, she's in a lot of scenes. Thank God she's terrific. Hmm. Um, and we're in Wales where the weather changes, you know, every 45 seconds. Um, so there's all those kind of, there's all those kind of uh, uh, adversities. 
Gotcha. Well, before we run out of time, I would like to remind everybody that You Should Have Left is going to be available uh, digitally via via video on demand starting on June 18th uh, through Universal Pictures. So please check it out uh, on behalf of David Kep. David, thank you so much for joining the show. Yeah, we really appreciate you taking the time to dive into all this. And and the movie's great. And so we're excited for more people to check it out. And David, enjoy Staten Island. We've all seen it. We all loved it. It's uh, it's very, very good. Like, yeah. yeah. And forward to it. Yeah. Same with Spike Lee's film, too. Yeah, Spike's yeah. film's really great, too. It's also, great, it's so much Finally, new movies to talk about. We're so yeah. excited. Now, and it seems like they're getting, I know we're going over, but it seems like they're kind of figuring out how we release these. We bring mm-hmm. them out on Fridays, you know, do some press like this, not just so you sell tickets, but so that people are aware of movies and continue the conversation about movies. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I thought The Five Bloods and, and uh, King of Staten Island today, I was excited about both, and it feels like a weekend. There's movies. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. and Brana has a new movie on art on Disney Plus. It's like it's it's cr- and every one of those movies were shot on thirty five millimeter film this weekend, which is actually really kind of cool too. So, interesting. Yeah. All right. Cool. Thank you, David. Take care. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.